Welcome to the High Vibe and Healthy Podcast. My name is Fran Dargaville and I'm a functional nutritionist with a passion for gut health and real food. I'm here to share my take on nutrition and health, answer your questions and chat with leading health and wellness experts and all-round inspiring humans. Enjoy this week's episode and submit your questions at frandargaville.com or via my Instagram, frandargaville. Hello there, friend. I hope you're having a great week. Today, we're speaking all about PCOS. So if you've been diagnosed with PCOS or you have some of the common signs of this condition, like missing or irregular cycles, excess body hair, weight gain, acne or fertility issues, or you're just keen to learn more about this common women's health issue, then this episode is for you. We're chatting with Selene Douglas a nutritionist specializing in helping women with PCOS reduce and resolve symptoms without medication. Selene shares with us the different types of PCOS, the lab testing you want to consider, and the key nutrition and lifestyle strategies and supplements that are helpful to consider when addressing the condition. We also chat about hypothalamic amenorrhea or HA and how that differs from PCOS and metformin, which is a medication often used to treat PCOS and some of the issues that can arise when using metformin. Foreman. Okay, let's get into the episode. Hey, Selene, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here chatting with you all about PCOS. And this isn't something that we've gone into detail you know, on the podcast before. And you're definitely an expert in this area. So I think it's going to be a really, really great conversation and helpful for anyone dealing with PCOS or anyone who suspects that they might have this condition. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk about it. It's obviously really, really common affecting around 10% of women. And I think in general with our health stats, we need to appreciate that across the board, they're probably a bit of a underrepresentation of the true statistics just because with some things there's you know some gray areas with diagnosis which we'll obviously get into today and lots of other things um, around that so I think it's probably higher than what we think it is and that's already huge right so yeah, yeah it's it's incredible and all these women's health conditions are very much undiagnosed underdiagnosed mm. as we would know yeah yep, sure. so could you explain to us what PCOS actually is and also some of the common symptoms that are associated with this condition? Yeah, of course. So PCOS is an acronym really or an abbreviation for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I think the first point of confusion around the diagnosis and what it actually means and is, is the name specifically. So polycystic ovarian syndrome, straight away, we're going to assume that the condition is really characterized by these cysts. And whilst they are certainly part of it, I think really it's more characterized by the androgen excess, which we'll go into today. So really dysregulation in our hormones like testosterone and DHEAS and even androstenedione. I refrain, a lot of people online call them your male hormones. And just from working with so many women around this, I refrain from using that term because A, I think it's a little incorrect anyway. We are all supposed to have a certain level of testosterone as, you know, a normal part of a healthy menstrual cycle that allows us to have a great libido, that allows us to build muscle. So really with PCOS, it's a dysregulation in these hormones. It's not that they've got high levels of male hormones, which I think a lot of 
people use that terminology because that's what we all say. And I think, I don't know, when you look at the symptoms and how that would also make those people with PCOS feel that they've got high levels of male hormones, that I, I can just be something that, you know, I think we can sort of change our language around a little bit because it's not that they've got this, that they've not got male hormones, they've just got higher levels of those hormones than another woman would that would be healthy so basically this androgen excess is what drives a lot of the symptoms so the key symptoms we'll see with pcos will be irregular cycles often that comes with an ovulatory cycles which will mean that maybe there's no cycles where you're ovulating maybe there's some way you ovulate some way you don't or maybe that ovulation is just irregular and there's an irregular pattern there um the other thing that we will see often is hair growth and that can be you know around the face even it can just be a little extra body hair and then the other thing we would often see is acne that can be really face jawline is where we will commonly see it but even the chest and back as well so they're often the things that I'm looking out for and then a few other little keys that we might see in pathology would be a really really high level of LH in comparison to our FSH and of course Hopefully we're testing that accurately, which we can go into at some point today, but that would also be a really common characteristic of PCOS and part of addressing PCOS, it's really important that we are looking to bring down that LH because that's also what's going to be kind of that higher level issue causing a lot of those other symptoms like the irregular cycles and the irregular ovulation. So at the moment, what's used to diagnose PCOS is the Rotterdam criteria which if you have PCOS, you may or may not be familiar with that. And if you just Google it, it will tell you that basically it's this list of three different key characteristics and you need to meet two out of three of those in order to qualify for a diagnosis. So the first one is that you've got these irregular or anovulatory cycles. The second one is that you've got high levels of androgens. So that's the testosterone, DHEAS, androstenedione, and even, you know, some doctors, I believe, are happy to not test those and go off symptoms. So if you've got the hair growth and the acne, they're kind of checking that box and some will go ahead and get some blood tests ordered. But there are some, I guess, issues around that, say, you know, like our standard reference ranges being a little bit iffy to begin with. And then some um, women, I'd say this is less common, but they might just have androstenedione, which is often left out, and they might have normal levels of testosterone and DHS. Other presentations, I suppose, would be, you know, more problems with detoxification of those hormones rather than the actual production itself. So there are some, I guess, outliers when we look at that particular criteria piece. And then the second or third one, pardon me, would be the polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. And that is a little bit problematic in the diagnostic criteria because there are lots of other reasons why you could have polycystic ovaries. And there's, a, you know, we might go into this today, but hypothalamic amenorrhea or HA is a really, really common presentation that can look similar to PCOS in some instances when we compare the criteria. But 
really it's like a completely different treatment approach and cause as well to correcting that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it would be really good to touch on that because I've definitely Mm. seen that in a lot of women who have come to me and their doctor may have told them that they have PCOS and diagnosed them with that. And then I ask what was actually involved in that diagnosis. And it was purely based on ultrasound and having those cysts. So could you kind of clarify a little bit about, you know, I guess the difference between that and, you know, PCOS and what would you consider that, I suppose? You know, they're really different things altogether, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, HA stands for hypothalamic amenorrhea. And really, if we're looking at a a very common presentation of HA, we're looking at cessation of the menstrual cycle, usually entirely. But really leading up to that, it is quite common where women will have experienced, you know, irregular cycles. It's very, it's more unlikely that they're going to go from having a textbook regular perfect cycle to then all of it you know all of a sudden one day just completely stopping so in the lead up to it stopping normally we will see a pattern of irregular cycles or that's been my experience anyway and that is quite different um, if we're looking at HA because really it's a misfiring or miscommunication between the brain and the ovaries that's causing that cessation of the menstrual cycle and typically that is due to extreme forms of either physical or even mental stress so things that would cause HA I really commonly see, and I don't know if you've had this friend, but women who've gone through quite a rigorous or extreme fitness journey, whether that's delving into like your fitness comps or, you know, even doing something like having a weight loss goal or a fat loss goal or a body composition goal and doing something like even, you know, an F45 challenge where they've eaten a certain amount of calories per day and then, you know, done all of these workouts. And that can be enough that it's going to put quite a lot of stress and strain on the body. And essentially in very, very simple layman terms, your body's sort of just gonna go, well, I don't have what I need to have a period and it's all a bit too stressful to reproduce right now. So I'm essentially going to turn that um, system off for the time being until it's safe to reproduce. And you know, it's more complex than that. And there is hormonal things as well going on there, but essentially that is kind of how we get to HA. But then if we kind of go back to looking at PCOS, it's not always caused by insulin resistance, but it very, very often is. And that is early stages of metabolic syndrome, essentially. So very, very different. What what someone needs to correct that insulin resistance is very different to what someone with HA needs in terms of a dietary approach. And I think for me, one of the most problematic things is conventionally, if you're going to seek out a diagnosis and you do get labeled with PCOS, one of the most common things that you will be offered is metformin, which is a drug given to people with diabetes or insulin resistance in order to reduce their insulin levels. Um, And the theory being, of course, that in reducing this insulin, we're going to improve the PCOS. And don't get me wrong, for a lot of women, they're really happy with it and it works really well. It has side effects and things which we can get into. But the problem there is someone with HA, that metformin is completely inappropriate prescription for them. I have seen this happen before. And I think one of the problems is the assumption around insulin being present and and saying you know well you fit this you fit into this criteria therefore you must have insulin resistance 
often that isn't actually being tested. There's no fasting insulin being tested. And then a script for metformin is being given. If someone actually isn't insulin resistant, that, that is really problematic to me. And I've had this happen before with a few of my HA clients. So I think maybe some, some tighter rules around that would be great to see. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And also we know just how powerful diet and lifestyle factors can be with this as well. And that should definitely be a first port of call before going to something like metformin. And that very rarely is recommended, you know, in the doctor's office when it comes to any of these conditions. So it's definitely a little bit frustrating as well. Yeah, it's super frustrating. And some women are really happy, like they take metformin and they're happy with it. But I also, you know, and I think it's easy for us to be quite biased around that because usually people aren't coming to see us if they're like, I'm really happy with how my medication is working, right? So I'm fully aware that I am chatting to the people that are not happy with how their medication is going for them. But quite often, you know, it causes quite a lot of digestive upset. Um, So loose bowel movements. I have had, and again, totally an N equals one example, but I have had one client that as a result of, well, where sort of her and her gastroenterologist are sort of assuming this at this point, but that um, it did cause huge amounts of digestive inflammation for her to the point where they were almost questioning a Crohn's diagnosis. She stopped taking it. And then within six months, her, her endoscopy was completely clear again. So, you know, there are changes to the microbiome that we see as a result of metformin. And I don't, believe that we have sort of sufficient evidence around this. The other thing we know metformin does is depletes nutrients like our B12, which are really, really important. And what we're also, I think, not seeing is say the prescription of metformin with the recommendation to have your B12 levels tested every three to six months if you're going to be taking it, or even saying, you know, this is actually not a long-term solution. You need to be doing this and, you know, making the dietary and lifestyle changes for a more long-term approach that you can then come off it. The other thing, and you know, potentially, in my opinion, one of the most problematic is that we know it does cause damage to our mitochondria. And when we look at kind of the early stages of disease development, chronic disease development, it often starts with that, that generalized inflammation. And I think that is incredibly problematic for people who are going to be taking it long-term and who are told basically, here's your script, see you in five years. You know, I, I have a problem with that as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good point. And I'm glad we're having this conversation because, you know, obviously, as we know, there are plenty of things that you can, you know, put into practice first and it, you know, it may be necessary or or beneficial in some cases, but definitely not a first port of call and something that should be handed out so easily. A quick message from me to let you know that right now I have spaces available in my four month one-on-one nutrition programs. If you're struggling with bloating, constipation, food sensitivities, or other gut-related symptoms or conditions from anxiety to endo, I would love to support you. In these programs, I help you to get to the root cause of your symptoms in a realistic, sustainable way. You'll get personalized nutrition, lifestyle and supplement recommendations and online messaging support in between sessions to get all of your questions answered and make sure nothing gets in the way of you getting results. Head to frandargaville.com or the link in my Instagram bio to learn more or book a free phone chat with me. Okay, back to the episode. So 
coming back to, you know, PCOS and I guess sort of this root cause approach to PCOS, are there different types or driving factors that actually lead to the development of PCOS or, you know, that I suppose are the, the cause of the PCOS developing? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's it's definitely multifactorial. I think that we're in the next few years, as with probably every health condition, we're going to be finding out more and more about this. And I think what we know about it right now is probably going to change in the next 10 to 15 years as it always does. But for what we have at the moment, we do know that one of or the most common driving cause is that insulin resistance. And, you know, with PCOS, we need to also understand that there is more than likely a genetic component as well, because we know that not everyone who develops insulin resistance is going to necessarily express symptoms of PCOS. And so what that tells us is that someone who has the genetic predisposition to PCOS who goes on to develop insulin resistance, that can actually initiate or trigger the expression of those PCOS genes. So I think that's an important factor to understand because yeah, not everyone with that insulin resistance will go on to develop that. The other um, really common factor would be chronic stress and that sort of more adrenal dysfunction leading to the expression of PCOS symptoms. I commonly see them actually both together because we know the impact that say chronic stress can also have on our insulin and metabolic health because when we're stressed, especially in those um, earlier stages of a chronic stress picture, we're going to be more likely to be breaking down stored glucose in the liver. That's going to contribute to higher levels of insulin. And interestingly, with some of my clients, I'll get them to do say two weeks of um, a continuous glucose monitor or CGM. And it's really interesting because they then get that real time data about how stress is actually impacting their blood sugar levels. So that's always fascinating to see, but a little bit of a clue there. Hopefully if we're doing testing, we're able to see someone's fasting insulin and kind of go, okay, cool. Is, is this part of that root cause? Or we're able to, and I should say, we're looking at someone's androgens and which ones are elevated. And another clue will be that if there are higher levels of those DHEAS levels or even really low levels, that is where we're kind of going, okay, there is an adrenal problem here. In some people, you know, you might want to delve into more of the salivary adrenal profile because we know, of course, that there are some problems with getting cortisol tested on pathology or blood testing because it's it's just not the most accurate way to to get that done. Other things, I don't know that this is necessarily a cause or more so a condition that we would see in conjunction with PCOS, but a lot of women with PCOS do present with thyroid problems as well. The stat for you is around 25%, but again, going back to how we started, that is more than likely a big underrepresentation due to problems with getting accurate thyroid testing. You know, a lot of people do seek out a diagnosis, but due to limitations in essentially Medicare budgets and the rules and regulations around that. What's usually recommended is a TSH test or a thyroid stimulating hormone test. The reference ranges around that are super loose and often don't pick people up to begin with. Um, and then the, the other problem really is that TSH can actually look quite normal when there is dysfunction going on in the thyroid, especially in the early stages. So I'd say there's probably more women with thyroid issues that have PCOS than we actually know at this point in time. So 
that's something I love to try and look at as well. Other things around that, you know, we talk a lot about post-pill PCOS and that early stages of coming off the pill that you can have a disruption to the androgens that are present. I think if you fall within that camp, you know, if it's been more than six months, you've been off the pill and you're still experiencing symptoms or, you know, another example, if you went on the pill because you had symptoms like the irregular cycles, the hair growth, the acne, then it's probably not post pill. It's probably actually something going on. But if you're within that first six months, then I think you don't necessarily want to be jumping down, jumping down the PCOS rabbit hole straight away because that may not be applicable. I'd just be looking at optimizing diet, nutrient status and those things and kind of just seeing how you go. The other one that's talked about a lot is inflammatory PCOS. Inflammatory is, you know, a very broad and large term. It sort of means anything. And I think A, when we look at insulin resistance, we can actually pop that in the inflammatory category as well, because insulin resistance is really metabolic inflammation and, and problems there with metabolic function. Our other forms would be, you know, obviously very relevant to your audience, Fran, but even, you know, chronic gut dysbiosis, um, gut dysfunction, that kind of thing. I personally haven't had instances at this stage through my clinic when I have seen it be inflammatory without the presence of the adrenal dysfunction or and or the insulin, the high levels of insulin. So I'm not saying that it's not a subtype on its own. I'm just saying personally, I don't think if it is maybe not that common and I would commonly still be able to put someone into either the category of it being adrenal or um, insulin. Yeah, absolutely. And as I'm sure you might have experienced, again, as you said, I don't know if it's just the people that come through our doors, but most people are dealing with some sort of chronic stress, adrenal dysfunction, it's so common. You know, gut dysbiosis and all of these things in together. Yeah, absolutely. So it is really that holistic and root cause approach because for so many people, it's not just one of these things, you know, they're generally multifactorial and there's a lot going on. So we definitely need to address things in that way. Yeah, definitely. And, and we need to, I think, really have that understanding that everything in our body is so connected. Everything impacts each other. We know, you know, take something like stress, for example, that's going to potentially drive up our insulin levels because of what it's doing to our blood sugar levels. It's also going to impact things like our stomach acid, which of course is going to long-term impact things like the ability for different pathogens and things to set up shop in our gut. So it's so connected and multifactorial. I think, yeah, it just drives home the point that we need to be taking that holistic view of someone and what's going on for them in their life instead of just going, you know, here's metformin, see you later. Yeah, 100%. So on that note, mm. what kind of role does diet and exercise have in, you know, managing PCOS? And are there any sort of specific dietary recommendations or lifestyle changes that you would generally recommend? And obviously we've spoken about the different types and the different root causes. Mm. So obviously that's going to look different to some extent, but what would you recommend around this? Yeah, definitely. We can kind of break it up into the different sort of types. I think that helps to make it a bit easier, but if insulin is high, then we are going to need to have a bit more of a conversation around carbohydrates. And of course, this depends on the person because for some people, when we look at their day-to-day -day sort of dietary patterns, we can either, either we can see really obvious things there that need tidying up in the way of carbohydrates, macronutrient balance, proteins, that kind of thing, or 
we might not necessarily see anything super obvious. And so that's where we're kind of going, well, is it more of a stress problem causing those issues with insulin? But basically from a dietary perspective, I think it's some really foundational changes. So looking at macronutrient balance is really, really important, making sure that at every single meal, a person is eating enough protein, enough fiber and enough fats as well. When insulin resistance is present, depending on the degree and what that person is already eating at the moment, I can be, you know, not necessarily super rigid, but a bit more strategic with carbohydrate placement and timing. So for example, you know, try if they're working out and training, trying to place those carbohydrates that they're eating after training, depending on what their lifestyle is like, including those carbohydrates more in the front half of the day can be better from an insulin management point of view. But again, it's always quite individual because a lot of my clients, if they have families, it might be more, it might be easier for them from that sort of like psychosocial point of view to include those in the evening. So it's always totally changeable depending on the person, but there is some degree of moderating that carbohydrate intake. Protein is super important. I think I see across the board, and perhaps you see this too, that one of the biggest mistakes people make is not eating enough protein in the morning. And whilst protein is definitely not the most important meal of the day, they're all important. I think it really does set the pace and the tone for the rest of your day. I know personally, if I started my day on carbohydrates with no fats or proteins, I would be like a hungry monster by the end of the day and eating the whole pantry. And I think we see that so often because people are time poor, they're running out the door or they're just a little bit confused about the whole, or, you know, another really common one would be like low appetite in the morning. So then they turn to something that's just like a piece of toast, which yeah, you're just going to throw out your whole day, contribute to that blood sugar dysregulation. So that is really, really important. I do prefer to work towards less snacking and more sticking to that three substantial meals a day. If there's a snack or two in there, depending on the person, that's fine. But it's, yeah, it just depends on what else is going on. Then if we're looking more at that adrenal PCOS picture, it's important that they are eating carbohydrates and enough of them. Um, so I love to include things like your resistant starches, you know, your sweet potatoes, even um, cooked and cooled rices, those sorts of things are wonderful to include. The other thing that's really important for both kinds of PCOS is looking at caffeine intake. Again, something really commonly that we see not just isolated to PCOS, but coffee first thing in the morning with no food in the stomach, which I mean, even as nutritionists, we're not perfect. We still do that kind of silly thing sometimes, but it does contribute to blood sugar dysregulation and it is going to throw out your cortisol level. So it's really about looking at what that person's doing on a nearly day-to-day -day basis that's actually contributing to the imbalances that they've got going on. So coffee would be a really big one. From a dietary perspective, something that can be really effective and so easy and nearly free is looking at a good quality spearmint tea. So as far as the research goes, two cups a day is found to be super beneficial. The study that did look at spearmint tea wasn't actually done long enough to see decreases in the hair growth, but did see decreases in the androgen excess. So I can't remember the time frame off the top of my head. It wasn't very long. It was maybe a month or so. And what we do know about a symptom like hair growth is that sadly it just takes so long to decrease. And so that's where looking at you know, other markers of improvement is really important. Yeah. Anything 
else that awesome. you can think of? I've got a few others. But, yeah, no. Um, I, I think that's the foundation. Yeah, definitely. I think that's helpful. And I suppose, you know, I, you already mentioned training as well, I mm. suppose, with the insulin resistance component, you know, incorporating some resistance training, form of regular movement, resistance training and those kind of things as well. Yeah. And it depends on the person. In a way that's you know, not like, going to impact your adrenals. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know it's that bit of a tight rope that you walk. I think look, if someone's at a point where they're not moving, I'm like, I kind of don't care what to kind of, I mean, within reason, but like, let's just get you moving. Even if that's going for a walk and getting some sunshine daily is so, so important. And I think we are sadly, and I think this is a bit of a construct of kind of not necessarily being anyone's fault, but just how our lives have been designed. People are spending way too long inside, sitting down, not outdoors, not in the sunshine. They have far little far too little time for themselves. Um, a lot of people, their Monday to Friday is kind of so hectic. They barely have time to eat during the day. All of those factors, we can start to see how we end up with a lot of these problems. Yeah, absolutely. So, so true. And, you know, I I probably sound like a broken record. I don't know if you feel the same, Celine, but like I'm always banging on about these sort of foundational pieces when it comes to, you know, whole foods diet, getting outside, moving your body, all this, you know, kind of thing. And it sounds really boring, but these foundational pieces do so really important. make a difference. Even yeah. if you have a condition like PCOS, yes, there may be specific testing and, you know, supplements that are more targeted, but these foundations, regardless of what you have going on are really, really important. Yeah. And I mean, everyone wants the sexy solution, like the, can I just take the the special herbs or the, the what have you? And I'm like, yeah, though, like we can go down that route, but at the end of the day, you still need to fix what you're doing every day that's contributing to this. And I'm not saying that this is anyone's fault. This is due to so many different factors, but the foundations can't, like they can't be, they can't be missed. And I think when we are missing those, we're essentially no different to conventional medicine just wrapped up in a, a natural kind of label, right? So if someone was to come and see us, we don't talk to them about any of the foundations and we just go, here, take this nutraceutical and this herbal supplement and it will correct your symptoms, which it probably won't on its own anyway because they all work together. But let's just say we were doing that. Like that's no different to getting someone to just take metformin. It's just the same, but it's kind of wrapped up with, yeah, with a kind of natural title. So I think it's so important to address those foundations. And honestly, you just get so much, you get better results. And it's all, as we said, interconnected. Like if you're able to move your body, get out in the sunshine, reduce those cortisol levels, you're going to be feeling better within yourself, which means it's going to be easier for you to want to take good care of your body. It's going to be easier for you to think about how you're going to, you know, set aside time to create those balanced meals. If you're in a place where you're super stressed, you're wired all the time, you're racing from thing to thing, you have no time for yourself, you're depleted in vitamin D and sitting down all day, like you're going to have no energy, you're going to feel like crap and it's going to feel like a really uphill battle to actually follow through with those strategies of taking care of yourself. So it is, I guess, 
and I'm sure you see this a lot, but you know, sort of those first few weeks of making those changes can be really hard, but it actually gets a lot easier over time because you start feeling the differences within yourself and that naturally feeds compliance and sort of bleeds out into all the other areas of your life as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, as you said, it just changes your life for the better. It's going to prevent you know, further health issues in the future. You're just going to feel better day to day as well. So obviously we want to address what you've got going on, but there are so many other positive effects of that, that it's not easy, but definitely worthwhile. And I'm, I'm sure pretty much everyone who goes through this process and have, have passed that, you know, initial startup energy investment phase would agree as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So obviously we know that people have different root causes when it comes to PCOS. They need to be addressed in different ways. But as we know, people love to know about supplements and nutrients and that kind of thing. So what kind of you know, supplements, nutrients, you know, is there anything specific that we want to be looking at or considering when it comes to PCOS, keeping in mind that obviously this is, you know, general in nature, we need to identify what's going on for the individual specifically. Yep. Yep. Of course. So the one that gets talked about really commonly would be myo-inositol or even your different inositols, but myo-inositol more specifically for insulin resistance is found to be really helpful. And in my experience, everyone's a bit different. For some people, they will respond really well to it. For others, they won't. But myo-inositol can be really helpful when we look at some of our other blood sugar nutrients when I'm doing you know, pathology, I'm looking at things like B12 and folate and that kind of thing anyway, but those B vitamins can be really important as well for proper insulin sensitivity too. Things like magnesium, berberine, chromium. And as I said, there's totally individual response to these. So I have some clients that do really well on chromium and berberine together. I have others that do really well on inositol. So sometimes there's a little bit of like testing and tweaking to work out what's going to do well for someone. Some people respond really well to even cinnamon via supplementation as well. So it just depends on that particular person. The One of the things that can work really well for reducing those DHEAS levels is reishi. So that can work really well too. And, you know, we use certain things in our toolkit depending on what someone's struggling with as well. So if someone's, their main symptom that's, you know, affecting their day-to-day with their PCOS is something like their skin, I might use high dose omega-3s in that initial phase of the protocol because that's going to help with reducing some of that inflammation in the skin. So there's, I guess, some individuality there. And then in terms of the LH levels, Um, and reducing those, sometimes looking at even some herbal supplementation. And again, don't go out and like self-prescribe because there are differences in PCOS with insulin, uh, with estrogen levels very commonly. So some people really struggle with high estrogen. Some people have low estrogen. Some people have normal estrogen. And so that's going to really govern what happens here. But even herbal supplementation, things like black cohosh, peony and licorice combination, they can be really, really helpful for helping to modulate the androgens, but also bring down that LH, which is really looking at what's highest up in that hierarchy of problems is that firing in the brain. So I think approaching it from a multitude of different ways, especially dependent on what that person's goals are, you know, like whether it's fertility or weight loss or reducing their acne, like people are desperate to fix their PCOS for a variety of different reasons. So that is also kind of going to depend on what you 
what you're going to target first. But um, I think reducing that insulin is really, really key. And, and also the LH for me as well. They're things that I am working really hard on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really good time to mention that mm. there is a real issue with things like the standard hormone balancing oh. supplements yeah. that are sort of marketed as a catch-all. And with PCOS, this is a classic example when a lot of those herbs, you know, can be really problematic because they're not, you know, generally for the person with these kind of hormonal imbalances. Yeah. So yeah, yeah what what's your, yeah. do you agree with that? I talked about this online a little bit because we see it so much in our industry where there are certain supplements that you don't need a practitioner for that you can just get at a chemist, a health food store, sometimes even like little boutique stores sell these sorts of supplements. And there's a variety of different ingredients that, you know, can be problematic. But I think one of the most common ingredients would be Vitex or Chase Tree that I would see being a problem. And it's true that when prescribed properly, Vitex or Chase Tree can be amazing for things like mood, helping to support progesterone. When you look at it online or even see people talking about it online, they really talk about it as though all it does is kind of boost your progesterone levels, which for someone with PCOS, most of them, if they're kind of, you know, down the path of of investigating further, they've got an understanding that there's a problem there with ovulation. And so they're like, great, something that's gonna boost my progesterone levels and make me not feel moody. How wonderful, I'll take it. And I guess what's not understood is the intricacies of different herbs and what they're actually doing. So like with Vitex or Chase Tree, yes, it does help to support progesterone levels, but it can also increase your estrogen and it definitely increases your LH, which as we've sort of threaded through this podcast, like that's one of the primary problems with PCOS. And so often people that take those supplements will find their acne gets worse, their cycles get worse, the periods might even get heavier if that's something that they struggle with because of what's going on with their estrogen. So, and I think just a great way to explain this is like, when we look at hormone imbalance, right? That's actually no different to saying IBS. It's like, okay, cool. We know that there's a problem there with our hormones, but what hormones? We've got our adrenal hormones, we've got our thyroid hormones, we've got our ovarian hormones, we've got our gonadotrophin. So like exactly what hormones are we talking about? And then what imbalance are we talking about? Like, is it just an imbalance in our progesterone to estrogen ratio? Is it our androgens? Is it our estrogen production? Like specifically, what is it? Because there are so many different varieties of hormone imbalance that then logically to create a one supplement fits all makes no sense, right? It Like, it's just not possible. Yeah, 100%. Completely agree. And um, yeah, I think people think just because something's a natural supplement yeah. that it won't have any impact. Yeah. And we know that, you know, herbs and nutrients and all of these things are actually really powerful and really effective. So, Work you want to make sure that you're taking mm. the right thing, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah, sure. definitely. So this has been really, really helpful. Do you have any final piece of advice that you'd like to give to someone, either someone maybe that has been recently diagnosed with PCOS or they feel like they're not getting the support they need or someone that suspects that they might be dealing with this? Yeah, definitely. I think my first step for anyone that's been diagnosed or even anyone that suspects they might have it is testing because 
even if you know you have PCOS, we then need to kind of uncover that next layer of the onion. And that's really going, well, okay, we know you have PCOS, but what's causing it? Do you have that high insulin? Do you have that high DHEAS level? Do you have a multitude of nutrient deficiencies as well? Like, is there anything else going on that's potentially contributing to this? So I think testing is super important. And even if you suspect you might have PCOS but aren't sure, that testing is also really, really beneficial because you can, you know, go and do chat to a GP and see what their thoughts are on it. I think that is really, really important. And, and if you're not happy with the advice that you get there or you feel like you get dismissed, like go and see someone else, go get a second, third, fourth opinion, whatever you need to sort of be satisfied there. I do have a download, which I can give to you to pop in the show notes, which gives you a breakdown of the tests that I recommend, including the reference ranges and what we're aiming for there with a bit of an explanation around that. But I think that is really the first step because that is where you then start to diverge down the correct treatment pathway and the correct diet lifestyle supplement strategies. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, as you said, you know, getting a second opinion or getting support from someone like yourself mm. who can work alongside your, your GP as well, um, you know, it's really helpful in terms of having that sort of holistic root cause approach and, and factoring in everything that we've spoken about here. Yeah. So thank you so much, Solène. This has been such an awesome conversation. Could you just quickly share with us where people can find you and learn more from you and follow along with you? Yeah, of course. I am most active on Instagram. So my handle there is Solène Douglas underscore nutrition. My website's just my name. So Um And yeah, they're the best places to find me and connect with me. I do have a podcast as well. It's called Holistic Health Chats, but it's getting a bit of a re brand and an uplift um, or facelift, I should say. So if you just even search my name in the podcast app, you'll find me somewhere. But yeah, they're the best places to connect with me. And I'll also pass along that download too, which you can find on my website as well. So um, if you have been diagnosed or suspect you might have PCOS, that would be a really awesome thing for you to have access to. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll definitely pop all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much. This has been such an awesome conversation. Thanks, Solen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the High Vibe and Healthy podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to chat with me about how we can work together to reach your health goals, head to frandargaville.com. To connect with me day to day, Instagram is the place to be. Follow me via my handle at frandargaville. And finally, please note that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not considered to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.